Ooh, those winds really are icy tonight, aren't they? Almost as if it's a physical thing, biting at your exposed skin. At least you're in the warmth now, right? But I might have to apologize before I tell you this week's tales, as they are going to send a chill straight back through you. There's tradition surrounding many celebrations, not least a birthday. Whomever is the center of attention on that day gets to make one wish, one wish as they blow out the candles on their cake. Perhaps they'll wish for good health, or maybe monetary gain. Or perhaps they'll wish for something a little more sinister. Today is a special day, at least for me. I turned 31. Happy birthday to me. It's taken me a whole year, but at least I got there. Last year was a true milestone for me, but it wasn't so magical. Let me tell you why. I met a guy. I know, right? That's how it starts. We went on a date in the city that I live. He came from Berlin, Germany, and was visiting for business. We hit it off immediately. He took me to an expensive Italian restaurant for lunch. I watched in awe as he paid 100 euros without batting an eye. Then, we took a walk to the local romantic spots. He brought us some local fruit to enjoy. We finished eating and he turned to face me. He kissed me and we continued to walk along, holding hands and talking. I was having an amazing time. He kissed me again and asked me to go back to his hotel room. I told him no, that I didn't want to have sex straight away. He accepted this and we continued to explore the city. He started making plans for us. He was going to take me to London to visit my family next summer. He wanted to bring me to Germany for my 30th birthday in a couple of months, so we could celebrate together. I was thrilled, but I had a problem. My passport had expired and I couldn't afford a new one just yet. It was no problem, he insisted. He was going to come visit me. He went back to Germany. We stayed in contact. It was nice. I felt cherished and I was all bubbly and fuzzy inside. I told my friends about him. My family too. I was so happy for a few weeks. Then the messages started tapering off. He had stopped replying, but it was okay. He was still coming. He would reassure me this every week or so. I felt fine. I didn't want to push, so I kept my cool. Then the day came for him to visit me. I sent him a quick selfie and a message telling him I'm excited to see him. He replied almost immediately. Sorry, he said, I can't come. I'm in London for work. My stomach dropped and turned to ice. You've got to be effing kidding me. I replied back furiously, but you promised you would come. I have no other plans. I was expecting you to come. He didn't reply. I was at work. I hid myself away in the bathroom where I cried all morning. I felt stupid. I fell for it. I 
I couldn't believe it. When I got home that evening, I sent him one last message. Go screw yourself. Sorry was his reply. And that was the last time we conversed. My birthday that year was pretty unspectacular. I had no time to make plans. I didn't even have a contingency. Everyone was so busy. So instead, I went to my local supermarket and bought candles and a slice of honey cake. When I was home, I set up the cake. Then I set up the candle. I lit it and made a wish. Then I blew it out. That was last year. This year is going to be very different. As soon as I had made my wish, I decided it was time to grant it to myself. It's 2.45 in the morning. I'm officially 31. I smile and do a little dance. I have to be quiet though. I don't want to wake him up. It took me a while, but I finally found him. The man who lied and hurt me. He's sleeping in the bed of his beautiful, huge apartment in Berlin. At least he didn't lie about that. I stand over him, watching him sleep peacefully. He's alone. His cat curled up at his feet, watching me curiously. How can a man so cruel sleep so well? Oh well, it doesn't matter. I find myself smiling as I brandish the knife I picked up from his kitchen. My latex gloves feeling silky against the hilt. I trace the outline of where his heart is supposed to be. He stirs, but he doesn't wake. His cat sniffs my other gloved hand and dismisses me heading for the kitchen. I put the knife in his hands, directing the blade towards his chest. I put it down into his heart, but it's too shallow. He finally wakes, screaming in pain. I grab a book from the bedside and smack the knife deeper into the cavity. He suddenly stops screaming and lays still. Placing the book back, I check out my handiwork. He's definitely dead. His cat was still in the kitchen, undeterred by the events. I check myself and my surroundings, feeling much happier. Now it's time to go. I head back towards the way I came in, quietly humming the happy birthday tune. I guess that's why I don't hear a noise behind me. As I turn to check the apartment one last time, I see him standing there. A big smile is plastered on his face and the knife is still sticking out of his chest. Well, I had wished I could kill him again and again. If I mentioned that something was going from house to house, draining their victims of their blood, what would you instantly think of? (laughs) That's right, vampires. Now, what if I told you there were no vampires? What if I told you that there was something much, much worse?
It's all over the news. Vampire attacks. A string of them. Police baffled. Citizens scared. Even after I stopped watching the news, the gossip has been inescapable. It's all anybody talks about at work. I know the truth. I'm the only one. And I'd give anything to forget. There are no vampires in my city. There's something else. Something much, much worse. It all goes back to my big brother, Luke. Ever since we were little, Luke always loved nature. While I was in my room playing video games and watching movies, he'd be out in the yard, alone, going around with his little notebook and recording everything he saw. He'd obsessively track the sprouting patterns on my mom's petunias, or the different species of bird that came to eat the scraps of bread he left out. It wasn't just the cute stuff, either. Spider eggs, cocoon caterpillars, worm larvae. Anything that was living, he'd study and sketch like it was the most fascinating thing he'd ever seen. Our mom once threw a hysterical fit when she found he'd created an ant colony under his bed using mason jars and cardboard tubes. Luke cried for three days after she threw them out. I have to admit, he had an incredible way with animals. When he was 12, he nursed a wounded rabbit back to health in my dad's shed without anyone but me ever knowing. He stayed up all night just to keep the thing company. It was weird for me to see a boy acting so maternal, but secretly, I always admired him for it. Once, during one of our rare fights as teenagers, I asked him if he had any friends. But Jess, he said, looking genuinely hurt, they're my friends. And it was true. As long as he had animals, he never really needed people. He joined the walking society in high school, but I think they were too tame for him. By the time he was 18, he was regularly disappearing into the wilderness for days. My parents despaired, but he always came back, filthy and with a huge grin on his face, spouting some story about an injured deer he'd helped or a bird of prey he'd found nesting in the trees. People said he was obsessed, but I always thought there was nothing wrong with an obsession if it made you happy. He loves it, I tell skeptical friends. What's the harm in that? Luke never went to college, much to our parents' dismay. Instead, he got a job as a park ranger. The pay was terrible, but he loved it. Loved being out there among the trees and the hum of the wildlife, at peace in his own little world. He spent all his free time looking after animals and exploring the park. He never really learned how to talk to people. <laughs> but we managed to stay close over the years. I found a house that was handy for my job in the city, and also not too far from the park where he worked. We lived like that for a long time, leading our separate lives while still seeing each other on occasion. Recently, we went a few months without meeting. It was my fault, really. I got swamped at work, lost track of things. So I convinced him to come have dinner with me and my husband so we could catch up. He'd just come back from one of his big hikes. He was tired, but in good spirits, and the dinner went pretty well as he told his funny work stories and anecdotes from life at the park. 
It was actually my husband who noticed it. We were eating dessert when he happened to glance to the side of him, towards Luke. He recoiled. Oh, jeez, he said, his voice a mix of revulsion and embarrassment. Luke, you've, you've got a, a, a tick on your arm. Luke looked up in surprise, twisting his head around to see where my husband was pointing. I saw it too. Black thing, barely more than a speck, fixed onto his upper arm. Damn, said Luke. How long's she been there? I guess that was the first odd thing. She, not it. At the time, I didn't think much of the slip-up. Luke knew enough about animals to tell it's gender, probably. But when my husband offered to get some tweezers and take it out, he brushed him off. The teeth stay in if you do that, he said. Trust me, I have the right kid at home. I'll do it when I get back. So we finished the meal, and the evening, with that thing still buried inside him. When we said our goodbyes, I hugged him awkwardly, careful not to touch his arm. As soon as the door shut, I looked towards my husband and just shook my head. Hey, hey, it's fine, he said, smiling. Looks a bit eccentric, but he knows what he's doing. And I believed him because I wanted to. Me and my brother don't communicate that much, so I'd say it took me a few weeks after the dinner party to realize he was ignoring my texts. I tried calling, but that didn't work either. Thinking back to his strange behavior the other night, I started to wonder if I should have been more worried. After spending a day at work too distracted to focus, I decided to pay him a surprise visit at his park. That weekend, I drove up to his patch, parking as close as possible to the little hut he operated out of. I walked up the winding trail, passing a few families and hikers on the way. It was a beautiful day. Not for the first time, I felt a little stab of envy for Luke and his escaped life. The hut he used was a tiny one, just enough room for a chair and a heater. I walked up to the visitor's window, intending to wave, but to my surprise it was covered up. Black paper, sellotaped to keep every inch hidden. So instead, I knocked on the door. After a couple of moments, Luke came out. I almost did a double take. My brother, who'd always been the healthiest guy in the family, looked terrible. His cheekbones stood out sharply, and his skin had a sickly yellow tinge to it. Instead of the regulation uniform, he was wearing a huge black hoodie. But even that couldn't hide the thinness of his frame. Luke? I said. Christ! You look terrible! What do you want? He asked. His eyes were sunken and glassy as if covered in film. I just came to check up on you. I'm fine. No, you're not, I said. What are you doing in that hut? Why is it all blacked out? I needed some privacy. It was all wrong. 
The Luke I knew needed fresh air and natural light as much as possible. Or else he got anxious and depressed. Then I noticed something odd. I could see it when his clothes moved. There was a lump on his arm the size of a tennis ball. He saw me looking. You should go now, he said. I'm very busy. Luke. I'm sorry, Jess. You should go. He walked back into the hut and slammed the door. I watched him go, hurt and confused. This was so unlike him. I knew something was up, but I also knew he wasn't the sort of person who would ask for help. I hesitated, almost turning back to the car. No. If I didn't look out for him, nobody would. I went over to the hut and opened the door. He was sitting with his back to me, the hoodie removed. I was about to speak, but what I saw made the words stick in my throat. Something was growing from his arm. No, growing into his arm. A bulbous sack of fat. Semi-translucent skin tinged pink at the edges. Eight arms clamped into place around his bicep and a long, needle-like head, buried up to the hilt in my brother's flesh, sucking greedily at the puckered red skin that surrounded it. My brother looked down at the creature. He was smiling. Then, gently, he began to caress it, just as he had caressed that wounded rabbit all those years ago. I must have made some kind of sound because he abruptly looked up. Our eyes met, and his face twisted into a look of rage. Get out! He roared, storming towards me. Get out! Startled, I stepped backwards, and he slammed the door in my face. I drove back home with trembling hands on the steering wheel. He's sick, I kept telling myself. He's really sick but my mind wouldn't erase the image of what I'd seen. I told my husband, not everything, just what I wanted to remember, that he looked terrible and needed help. He agreed to come back with me the next day and talk him into getting to a hospital. But when we returned, there was a complete stranger waiting at my brother's station. What, Luke, he said? He quit last night, out of the blue. I hoped the guy was going to a hospital or something. He looked absolutely famished. I went to his house, but it was abandoned. And the neighbors said they hadn't seen him. We drove to every hospital within 50 miles, showing them his picture. All we got were shaking heads and blank looks. I left my number everywhere. Please call me if you see anything, I'd say. He looks like this, only thinner. I tried the police, but though they were sympathetic, they couldn't do much. I'm sorry, the officer said. If he's avoiding you, we can't do anything about that. You don't understand. I'm his only friend. He's in trouble, I'm telling you. My husband had to guide me out in the end. I'm sorry, Jess, he said. 
You've done everything you can. Come on, it's time to go home. So I did. After a while, I even went back to work. I was barely functional, but work got around about my brother, and the rest of the staff were kind to me. For weeks, I worked in a kind of stupor, unable to sleep or eat properly for the stress. Nights were the worst. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw that thing again, clamped around his arm. Then, just when I had almost given up hope, he came back to me in the last way I'd expected. It was the middle of the day. My phone rang. When I saw that it was him, I almost jumped out of my seat. I answered it immediately. Luke, I said. Luke? The voice at the other end was faint. Jess. Yes, Luke, it's me. Where are you? Can you tell me where you are? I'm in my flat. Where? Where is your flat? In a voice painfully faint, he gave me an address. It was right in the middle of the city. The sort of place he hated. She wanted to be where people are, he said. Who did? I demanded. He began to speak, but the line cut off. I leaped out of my seat. On the drive towards the address, I tried his phone again half a dozen times. It just rang and rang and rang. I doubled the speed limit in a few places, but I didn't care. He needed me. Luke needed me. By the time I got there, it was too late. The flat was on the second floor of a dingy downtown apartment building. It wasn't locked. I pushed the door open and found a scene of complete devastation. Shattered wooden glass, a moldy sofa ripped to shreds, scratches all along the wall and floor. And the window was shattered, from the inside, as if something had forced its way out. Something huge. Luke! I called out. Luke, it's me! That's when I noticed the blood. There was a trail of it. A long, wet smear snaking its way down the corridor and into the kitchen. What I found there did not look human. In one paper-thin hand rested his cell phone. The other was reaching up towards the silverware drawer, towards the knives. Nobody knew Luke was in the apartment. He'd been squatting for a few weeks by the looks of it. The cause of his death was unknown, but whatever it was, it had left his body completely devoid of fluid. This is what they told me. What I told them, they were less keen to hear. So your brother had a tick a few weeks ago. I'm sorry, ma'am. That's probably irrelevant. No, you don't understand. It was eating him. Yes, ma'am. That's what they do. Why don't you have a seat? 
I tried to explain what I'd seen, but they thought I was hysterical from finding my brother like that. And I was hysterical. But I'm not crazy. I know what killed Luke. And yes, maybe I should have tried to forget. Maybe I should have put it behind me as a horrible freak ordeal. But that was before the bodies started showing up. Withered, bloodless corpses. Discovered in their own homes. Signs of a break-in, police baffled. And now rumors. And the less scrupulous magazines and all over the internet. That a legion of vampires is haunting our city by night. If only that were true. If only that were true. Often there is little mercy or thought given to those who are found guilty of a crime and imprisoned. To most of our minds, we're glad for them to be incarcerated, to be locked away from society until they are corrected. But what if the people who are meant to be correcting them are actually creating something worse to be released? I'm not entirely certain how I get around to these fascinating little places. The scientists at the prison I escaped from claim that some of my ilk are attuned to another insignificantly darker dimension, that our neo-insanity allows us to sympathize with its native chaos, granting us movement between it and the solid earth. That's why I keep waking up in basements. There's less resistance to the other world down here, where a serial killer might just pop out of thin air. They call us neo-psychotics. You see, after that peculiar solar event that nearly drove the world crazy, some doctors believe it gave birth to a whole new type of insanity, one so strong it could shape the world around it. I can't say that I'm not grateful. It certainly makes my job appreciably easier. Now every time I go to sleep, which the scientists claim increases my traction with the other side, I wake up in another basement. Of course, not all basements are created equal, but I generally arrive in the more dilapidated and shadow-strung variety, which I confess are my favorite. That I've now been named the Cellar King is also a new and likable addition to my life. Not being one to look down on a compliment, I've strived to fulfill my new moniker with gusto, constructing thrones from the wonderful junk reposed within these old places, and arranging my victims as subjects with my court of corpses. I've even started dressing the part, you should see the crown I've fashioned for myself, all bones and cobwebs. Why, I haven't left the basement scene in years, only moving upstairs to gather my subjects, so to speak, use the facilities and nourish myself. I also tend to stock up on sleeping pills whenever I run across them. I never know when I'm gonna have to make a quick getaway. The weird thing is, I've recently started to feel the basements around me, see through them, control them, maybe even become them. I can use cobwebs like vocal cords, whispering up from the hollows. The dank spaces become my mouth, allowing me to taste the effulgence of trespassers. I've eyes that see through the underground shadows as if they were peepholes, and I can hear through the encrusted vents of an old furnace as clearly as my own ears. And all the filthy, nasty things that lurk and crawl down here obey me without question. Equally strange, I've been oversleeping lately, 
not waking for days. On these rare occasions, I dream I'm buried within the earth and a single house filled with all the children of Adam is built atop me. Soon, a cloaked man comes and steals me from the ground. Into a dark room beneath the huge house, he shows me to a black throne, the stone of its construction cold and dank. I seat myself upon it, and the man whispers, beneath them all you will reign. I swear, the more logs I put on the fire, the colder I actually feel. Still, at least it should make the outside a little more bearable for you, if you've already been acclimized. <laughs> mm, stay safe on the roads. Until next time. And now it's announcement time. Before we see you leave, I would like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales, along with everyone else who's been involved in bringing the horror to life here at the Cursed Inn. If you're a writer and think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us your demo at thecursedin at gmail.com, and we'll see if you have what it takes to scare our daily guests. Don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.